welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Field, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And I have a co-host with me today, uh, one of the Jude 3 Project contenders and board members, Pastor Cameron Triggs. And to- hey, everybody. Glad to be here. <laughs> and today we're joined by a very special guest, the truth. The truth. Oh. <laughs> the, I want to say it the proper way, but it's the truth. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Welcome, True. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I am honored to be a part of um, this interview. I think it is so critical, so crucial um, that the African American church is um, beginning to have this conversation and seeing the, the desperate need uh, for apologetics in the urban um, context. Um, thank you, guys, for what you do. Um, like you said, my name is Emmanuel Lambert. That's what my mama and my daddy named me. And uh, <laughs> I go by the truth. And I'm a Christian hip-hop artist. And um, I uh, got saved when I was five years old, um, uh, growing up in a Christian home. Understood what I was doing. Um, knew that I needed, a, that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. Um, however, struggled with uh, peer pressure from the age of five to 14. But I always knew that I was a believer because I could never uh, follow the crowd without feeling the weight of God's conviction on me, even at the tender age of six, seven, and eight years old. Um, 14 years old, I decided to take my faith serious, um, to um, surrender to the to Christ as, as Lord. And um, from 14 to 16, I just... Um, you know, start surrounding myself with a community of believers um, that really love the Lord, and uh, we all grew together. And at 16 years old, I started um, leading at my church in youth ministry. And um, at that time, I began to—I uh, was always a musician, uh, playing drums uh, at the age of 12. But that's what I was going to do professionally. My aspiration was to go to Berkeley College of Music and then um, play for the Philadelphia Orchestra. But God. Uh, Started to do something completely different, and uh, so when I was 16 years old and in that leadership position, I was actually a friend of mine, and I were kind of making fun of Christian hip hop because it was so cheesy back then, probably 20 years ago or so. <laughs> and in the process of doing so, we realized that we had the talent ourselves, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's how I ended up rapping. So I kind of stumbled onto rap. It wasn't my preferred genre of music. I wasn't allowed to listen to it in the house. Um, this, it was a. I, I would. I would have to say that it was an. It was really um, a sovereign act of God, um, just kind of navigating my life, you know. And um, so, started rapping at 16. Again, didn't know, never knew how serious it would become or what kind of platforms it would um, uh, that it would uh, lend to me. Uh, but uh, here I am, 17, 18, however many years later. And um, using my gifting and my talents uh, for the glory of God uh, all over the world. And uh, I went to Bible college, married, um, beautiful wife, two beautiful daughters. Um, been married 13 years, been with my wife 17 years. Went to uh, Philadelphia Biblical University, 
got a degree in theology with interdisciplinary concentration on social work, and uh, we're also attending an institution for Jewish studies. Um, so uh, that's pretty much my life. And I've got I have seven albums. You know, my eighth, the eighth is called It's Complicated, uh, which is um, is heavily inspired and influenced um, by uh, Robert Zacharias and Tim Keller and many of the other kind of leading thinkers of our time, critical thinkers in the area of apologetics. So, um, yeah, that's that's my life. That's me. That's dope. Um, I've, I've, you're one of my favorite um, Christian hip hop artists. Um, I heard your first CD, and since then I've been following you along, and um, definitely have been heavily impacted by your life. And I think you're one of uh, Cam's favorite artists as well. So, ah, <laughs> <damn>. <laughs> we're both we're both fans. Um, so we want to talk about uh, the intersection of the Black Church and apologetics with you today. Uh, what 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 issues should we be tackling as it relates to apologetics in the African American community? Because I know, as far as the Black Church, you have um, you're very involved as far as churches yeah. go and um, connections, especially in the gospel music industry. Um, from your ex- your experience, um, what do you think? What are some issues that you think we should be tackling? You know, it's interesting uh, because it really depends on what part of the world you're in. Um, or what part of country you're in, um, because up north the challenges are far different than they are in the south. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the south, what you're dealing with is a lot of still nominal Christianity, which you don't deal with as much now up north. Up north, I think you're dealing less with nominal Christians, um, uh, by and large, because. Um, other religions are beginning to dominate, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and also, I think that there is, I think Blaine talked about this a little bit. Um, I heard another pastor talk about this, and I think that there's a lot of truth to it. Um, the nominal believer doesn't feel the need to uh, wear the Christian banner or participate in um, Christian um, Christian. Uh, what I'm looking for, I guess, uh, Christian events or uh, it's a word I'm looking for that I can't find. But be a part of the Christian world. There, there's that that whatever that compulsion was, you know, five years ago uh, for you know people to go to church um, that um, has considered uh, diminished considerably. Um, and again, I think a large part of that is due to the fact that people don't feel the need because America is becoming increasingly more secularized. Uh, people now do not no longer feel the need to wear that mask or uh, claim themselves as a part of uh, the world of Christendom. I think another reason is probably because of the social persecution and even now some of the uh, physical persecution that the church is uh, enduring. Um, you know, if you were never really one of us to begin with, as, you know, First Child talks about, um, you know, it will kind of be easy for you to cut, easy to jump ship um, mm-hmm. and, ab- and abandon the calls and abandon uh, your association even, your affiliation um, with uh, Christianity. Because um, if you're not a genuine believer, then who wants to be a part of something that's losing from mm-hmm. a earthly perspective, from a natural perspective? Um, so I think that in one sense... Um, you know, the, the, there's the nominal church that you're dealing with in the South, which in the South there is still an air, though, of 
God consciousness, and there's still an air of um, there's still an air of reverence uh, for God, um, but it is slowly dwindling uh, with all the other things that I, that I just listed. Um, so I think that this, the, the challenges that we have in the South are are different um, it, because in the South now prior now prior to this uh, just kind of a departure from from the church or uh, departure from Christendom or association with Christendom, the challenge that we had, and we still have to some degree, uh, is that everybody in the South believes that they're believers. Um, you know, and again, especially due to the fact that they are most many they are raised um, to have a Christian orientation or orientation towards Christianity or a sensitivity towards Christianity, and they are raised. You know, you talk about Southern hospitality, uh, and they are oftentimes raised to be. Um, you know, upstanding people, kind, hospitable, uh, which we all know, you know, morality oftentimes is very, can be very deceptive, and uh, we can think that we are something that we're not based on um, have, you know, having a high standard, uh, a high moral ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I think in the, uh, in, in the South, that's kind of what we're dealing with. Um, you have to deal with a departure from the church, which to me is a good thing, um, because it's because that departure says, okay, these are the people that these you know these, it, it was it was more dangerous when these people thought they were believers or kind of wore the Christian banner proudly. Uh, mm-hmm. than they actually weren't. Uh, it's it's better that uh, I think who said it? I forgot who said it, but he said we have to get people lost first. <laughs> it's better that people kind of understand that they're lost um, and have a, 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 a equal footing in terms of the. Uh, so we start at the same place when, when, we, when we begin to talk about um, salvation or sin or whatever. Um, so I think that that's not, I don't think that that's necessarily a negative thing for there to be some sort of departure from the church. Uh, so I think that's one thing that's happening in the black church in the South. But then on the other hand, you still have a contingent of people that um, you have to, have to help them to understand that they're lost. Mm-hmm. And um, bring, bringing them to that place is, um, you know, oftentimes challenging. Um, now, up north, um, if you want to enter that, you can, that's fine. But up, um, up north, what you have to me in the black church um, is we have a church that is now uh, struggling with ecumenicalism um, mm-hmm. because there is, you know, you look at the likes of Jamal, Pastor Jamal Bryan. Now, Pastor Jamal Bryan is a very good friend of mine. Um, as a matter of fact, when I saw him on the Word Network with Farrakhan, um, I, I called him immediately, and we did schedule a talk, but, you know, um, schedules kind of didn't line up, so that's still a conversation that we have to have, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but Farrakhan was on the Word Network with yeah, I saw Pastor that. Jamal. Yeah, he was on with Pastor Jamal Bryant. Not only is he a friend of mine, I actually worked alongside of Pastor Jamal Bryant for a year uh, in 2010. Um, I served and uh, just kind of... Uh, well, I was a hired hand. I, I did training for his youth, for the leaders of his youth and young adult uh, ministry. There. He's a great man, loves heart, loves spirit. Um, however, um, you know, there were some challenges that I had with, uh, you know, what he did on the Word Network in this time. But it was very telling of where we are in this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the challenge wasn't that, uh, that Farrakhan was on the Word Network. Um, not in my estimation, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's healthy. I think it's healthy for the church uh, and people 
uh, to um, to kind of sit back and hear the dialogue between two religious leaders mm-hmm. and then weigh uh, so that, that we have an opportunity to, to weigh uh, what's being said, um, weigh the, the similarities and the differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that so that and that what that does is that forces us, which goes back to the need for apologetics, that forces us to think critically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's one of the other challenges that the black church, African Americans by and large, had this challenge. But we don't like to think critically. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I think that there's some, I think there's, I think that there's something good about um, people being exposed to, some, like you said, being in a classroom setting that now forced me to process in a way that I had not been, um, you know, I had not been, uh, felt obligated to do in time, you know, prior, prior to mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, I think that that, that so for the African-American church, it's good that we be, there's be some wage calls, um, you know, theologically for us, um, uh, where we're forced to kind of critically think through and, uh, you know, theological ideas and, and weigh, you know, the, 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 the pros and the cons, the similarities and the differences, uh, the contradictions and the contrast. And so, um, I think that that was, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I know some people would disagree with me on that, but I don't think there was anything inherently wrong with Farrakhan being on there. My biggest challenge was that there was not an exchange of ideas. The one thing that you see in church history is when Martin Luther, and this is obviously you know, church, church history from a Western uh, perspective, and we're talking about in, in, uh, in Europe and uh, you know, we're not talking about uh, any of the Africa, African-American uh, leaders or contenders for the faith, but Martin Luther, since he probably is one of the most popular, um, I'll just cite him for now. When you look at some of the exchanges that Martin Luther had, you know, he, there was an intentionality, you know, about there being this, uh, uh, him being clear on what the differences were between Christianity and Catholicism. Catholicism mm-hmm. being more works oriented, Christianity being more grace oriented. Um, uh, you know, there was a uh, the reason why he was exiled, the reason why he was persecuted, uh, the reason why he was hated by uh, by the Roman Catholic Church or the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church is because he defied. Uh, you know, that Paul the Apostle had the same issue. Jesus, excuse me, had the same issue with the religious leaders and the. To me, the the thing that makes it even more clear in, in terms of how we are how we are to apply some of those things that we see throughout Christian his, history and some of the, uh, happening throughout the scriptures uh, with Paul and with Chris, that it's, it was always in the context of religious leaders. Every time you see Jesus, it's interesting when you see Jesus talking to the woman at the well. You don't see him cursing the woman at the well or defying the woman at, at the well. You don't, you know, the Samaritan woman. You don't see him putting the Samaritan woman. Uh, on blast, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, you don't, you don't see him arguing uh, with the Samaritan woman or, or the Serapanesian woman. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a spirit of a, a, a spirit of, uh, of of love and grace. You know, uh, but when he's speaking to religious leaders, uh, there's a there's a tone that Jesus seemed to always take with them that was far different than he did with the people that were not, you know, in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Whenever he talked about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, you know, or the Essenes, or anybody who was in a position of power or, or, or had an authoritative voice uh, or influence 
uh, from a religious standpoint, he was always very stern with them. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing with Paul. Paul having most of his detractors were religious. Seventy-five percent of Paul's detractors were religious. And so what you oftentimes see, you see in the book of Galatians, he's referring to them as dogs. Do I think we should go around doing that today? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the point is, but the, but I think that the picture that was painted for us is that there's a clear difference between the way you deal with religious people that are in positions of authority and just people who are trying to figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. gotcha. um, and I think that when you look at it with uh, uh, Pastor Jamal Bryan did with Louis Farrakhan, there was no difference. That's the biggest thing. Even on the Million Man March, I watched the Million Man March, you know, and I watched Pastor Jamal Bryan. I thought he was good on, on, on some points. <laughs> <But, laughs> I, I like I like I like the fact that he was very open and explicit about uh, Jesus. You know that you know by His stripes we we are healed. You know he went into Isaiah fifty three. I thought that was good. There was intentionality there because it was kind of had nothing to do with the rest of um, with the rest of his uh, uh, speech. Um, uh, so you can tell he made an exaggerated effort uh, to, uh, to to in, to introduce this the, the Christian perspective and be uh, vocal about Jesus. So I think that that was good. The problem, I think, that I have, and I, I hate talking like this because people always uh, see this as overly critical, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because but you know, because it's easy to just kind of say, well, he represented, what more do you want? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I get that, but I do think that there are, that would, you know, so there's levels to it. It's layers. <laughs> You know, it's layers to this, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that the other layer um, is that, that, again, you have to consider the people always. That's me. I feel mm-hmm. like as leaders, we always have to be considering the people. And the thing is this, the fact that you were explicit was great, but the challenge was that, again, you got on a platform where you there was no difference between you and them. In other words, you didn't denounce any of what they represented. You didn't defy any of what they represented. And so all that does, which was to my original that's my original point is when you fail to uh, expose what the differences are, again, I'm not saying to be contentious, but when you fail to at the very least expose that there is a difference, what you do is whether intentionally or not, you um, you promote ecumenicalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when there's no difference, uh, there's, there's ecumenicalism. That's just that's just what it is. And so, I feel like um, in the black church, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, what's happening is we're wrestling with the difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel me? Mm-hmm. Are we di- how are we different? How different are we? Uh, um, when Louis Farrakhan was on the Word Network, he was allowed to speak as an authority. That, mm-hmm. to me, is problematic. Mm-hmm. Not that, not that, you know, again, that's, as long as when he's done, <laughs> the thing about Paul the Apostle, ah, man, so much, okay. But um, the thing about Paul the Apostle is that when he would go into a given city, a lot of people may not know this because it's not in Scripture, but it is in history, when he would go into a given city, any given city, <clears throat> excuse me, he was one of the many speakers. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, Paul the Apostle 
uh, would oftentimes speak on forums where there were a uh, where there were more when there was more than one communicator, and uh, they, the, the one communicator would be just a philosopher of some sort. Another communicator uh, would be a universalist. Another communicator would be a Gnostic. Another communicator would be, and you could just run the list. Another communicator might have been an atheist. And then the, the Apostle Paul would speak, um, uh, which is why when they brought him up, uh, when they when he was summoned uh, to uh, the Areopagus or, or Mars Hill, um, he was summoned. Uh, he, they, the, the first thing they said to him when they approached him was, we, I'm sorry, when they were speaking amongst themselves, was that we hear of another teacher who's preaching the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because at that particular time, there were many preachers and many teachers, uh, many pontificators, you know, who were who had a platform to rep- in representing their, uh, uh, their convictions, their beliefs. And oftentimes there would be three or four speakers, and then we would see Paul come up. When we were, by the time we saw Paul speaking in an open form, you know, on, on an open platform or at the Areopagus or in the in the plaza, by the time we see him speaking, he's one of many who had already gone before him. Mm-hmm. But when he did, he would be very intentional about drawing the line by saying things like, "I know your poets have said this." <laughs> you mm-hmm. feel me? <laughs> you feel me? Yeah. And then he spoke their poets. Here, okay, here's where we may agree. You feel me? Mm-hmm. I see one of one one uh, one of uh, one professor at Dallas Theological Seminary said that when Paul was talking uh, on Mars Hill, uh, when he made reference to all of the uh, altars uh, that had uh, altars uh, that had uh, been erected uh, to the to the various uh, deities, um, they said that Paul. One, one position uh, is that it was Paul was actually uh, uh, giving, paying them a compliment. Uh, he says, "I even see that you have an altar to the unknown God." Um, so one of the one perspective is that Paul was actually uh, paying them a, 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 a paying respect to them uh, for co- seeking to, at the very least, cover all of their bases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you understand what I'm saying? And then yeah. he goes into what their poets have said. Uh, again, quoting the poets, not even in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time Paul is finished, he has made a clear line between uh, what they have done, what they have believed to be true, what they thought to be necessary, and erecting the uh, altars to various uh, to, uh, to various deities, and kind of narrowing it down to what was actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus did the same thing. He said, "I know you heard it said, but I say unto you." You see that contrast? Very intentional about drawing the contrast between one group and another, one perspective and another, mm-hmm. one idea and another, one philosophy and another. And so I think that one of the biggest challenges the black church is having right now is understanding that there is a line because now that line is getting so muddy because of our fear to defy and draw a clear line between what we believe to be true and what's wrong with what they believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is where the challenge is. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> that's dope. I think that's that's a great assessment. Yeah. Tell you the truth. Uh, one key component in uh, apologetics is theological education. And um, in that sense, you're really a, uh, 
anomaly. You're a minority, even uh, in our context and across the globe. Theological education is not available um, to many African Americans or those in the urban context. Just wanted to ask you from your experience, uh, what barriers or obstacles, um, if any, exist for African Americans attaining an evangelical theological education? Well, I think that, um, in fairness, there has been a surge of African Americans attending Bible college over the past five to ten years. I think that um, with the likes of the uh, first, I think, the ambassador, um, to myself, uh, Flame, a trip, um, having um, gone to Bible college and that kind of being a known thing, um, many African Americans, uh, especially those of whom are uh, more reformed, you know, more, those of whom are more drawn to the uh, uh, the uh, reformed, have more reformed leanings, um, the likes of Shylin, you know, um, I think that um, there has been uh, uh, at least a small uh, surge in, in, uh, in the African American uh, communities because people are following uh, what we're what we what we've done and what we're doing. Uh, they've kind of taken notes and, if not uh, going to Bible college, you know, they're at least taking theology a lot more serious in the urban context. So that is one thing that I have seen, sometimes to a fault. <laughs> well, different conversation for a different day. Uh, only because, excuse me, um, what you find sometimes to me is the more, because the leading voices outside of us, the artists, uh, mm. and theology are reformed, uh, there can sometimes be an, an, an imbalance. But, no, again, like I said, it's a conversation for another day. I think that it's, the thing I think is good is that uh, there is a leaning, uh, you know, people are, are are moving more towards um, theology, being, being more theologically astute and having their faith informed. Um, but that, that is amongst millennials, I would probably say. Um, in terms of the African-American church, that is not in the, uh, the, the millennial demographic. Uh, now we got something different. Or not in the Reformed uh, kind of uh, evangelical world. Uh, so when you start looking at like the gospel artists in that world and Stellar's world, and um, which oftentimes they are very, uh, um, they are not as theologically astute. Um, you know, I think that the challenge. I think that there again, they have leaders that are. I think that the closest thing to a theologically astute leader for them is Kirk Franklin, uh, which. Um, I can't wait till y'all hear this new album, Losing My Religion. I know Kirk is a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard the album already. I heard the album like two months ago. And it is incredible. Uh, and I don't know if it's because I know where it comes from. Like, I know the space the album's coming from. But uh, the album's called Losing My Religion. And uh, Kirk sits under Tony Evans. Um, and Kirk is a, a thinker. And he's always, because of his position, he's always in debates with, uh, people about, you know, copycat religions and, uh, you know, like you said, the authority of Scripture. And I mean, he's always having to have that war and have that battle. Um, and so Lose My Religion is a is going to be a huge reflection of just kind of, the, you know, some of that. Uh, the, I mean, it's still very much a gospel album, but, you know, there are uh, parts of it that, that are going to speak to 
um, that are speaking to just, in other words, what he's trying to prop the church to do as he has been on his own journey, had to kind of come out of church life um, and churchianity. Uh, uh, he's prompting the church to do exactly what we're talking about, which is be more critical, um, take your faith more serious in your understanding of, of the scriptures. Um, mm. And so I think that, the you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, is happening is God is using the artist uh, to prop people uh, and prop the black church uh, to get serious about their theology. Um, again, whether that's going to a school or not. Now, the other thing I think is I've, I've actually been in talks with um, Dr. Zacharias, uh, it's his ministry over the past two months, and um, they're, they're, I've, I've spoken to them about this challenge, because we, we do have this challenge. Uh, in, in the urban context, you know, nothing like this exists. And um, so I can't get to just divulge every, you know, everything, but the conversation has been surrounding how can we, at the very least, maybe if it's not even going to Bible college, because that's a lot of years, <laughs> but, maybe, <laughs> but maybe it's establishing something, basically what you guys are doing in the urban context um, that will allow for, uh, that, that, where pe- that is spatially localized, where people can come and, you know, take a couple courses, a couple classes, and just, uh, just kind of, uh, be, that's what Kirk is doing. He just, you know, Kirk does, like, different classes, and they can just kind of be schooled and educated, and then we can talk through um, at, you know, at least a lot of their hard questions, um, even if they don't go through six, six years of, you know, five, six years of Bible college. Um, so um, it has been a challenge uh, historically. I do think, though, it is getting better because of the artists both on the gospel side, which obviously primarily Kirk Franklin is leading the charge on that, and then obviously uh, amongst the millennials you have, uh, you have us. Um, so I, I think it's improving, and I do think that we just need to do more intentional partnerships uh, with brown and uh, brown skin people um, brown skin people and uh, and looking to establish some specially localized things in the same way that you can find a mosque on every corner uh, every other corner uh, people need to be able to have the alternative an alternative outside of the church because it really is the church's responsibility to do to 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 be that place where people can come and be mm. educated in the scriptures. It's really the church's responsibility. Mm. Uh, it used to be the universities that did it, right? Mm. Um, they became secularized. Um, now you may get a religion course, uh, but <laughs> the universities used to do it. There was no separation uh, between theology, uh, theology, uh, and, and and information or knowledge and education, rather. Uh, you know, and the church also had the responsibility. Uh, where there should not have been a, a divide, uh, you know, we should not have compartmentalized uh, in a way where, you know, people are, are not being, uh, getting the proper theological education and coming to understand how to understand life through the grid of theology and how to mm. process education through the grid of theology. There was never, there should have never been this divide. Even the divide of church and state had a lot to do has a lot to do with where we are now. So the, between the universities, uh, just kind of abandoning their foundation and being the place where people can come get, get a theological education, the separation between church and state, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church and state, and the failure of and the black church being 
overly sensitive to the social plight, so overly sensitive to the social plight that we've even abandoned the importance of theology at our churches. I think that, that and because of that, uh, which is to me what we're seeing even with this whole Farrakhan, the church merger, uh, it's again, and I understand it because as African Americans, we have a huge sociological plight, but I think that what has happened over the years is we have, instead of putting all of it together, in other words, trying to figure out how to filter soci- our sociological challenges through the grid of Scripture and the grid of our theology, I think we've picked with the other. And, and so this is why our sermons become more man-centered. I actually have no problem with man-centered sermons. That's another conversation for another day, too, I'm probably. But um, I think to an exagger- in an exaggerated way, I think that our, mm-hmm. our sermons have become more men than, than God intended for them to be because we feel the sociological plight more than we feel people's need to understand theology, even though that's a backwards way of thinking. So I think that those three dynamics, black church breaking down, abandoning uh, theology for uh, the social, uh, to, to put an emphasis on the sociological, the social, the social plight, the, the divide between church and state, because Henry VIII wanted to sow his royal oats, and... and, and, <laughs> and <laughs> And, you know, and the, um, the universities abandoning their foundation and teaching uh, theology. Uh, I think that's where the breakdown is. But I think that what God is using now is the arts, interestingly enough, <laughs> um, to kind of bring us back uh, to that place. So, man, that's 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 great. That's very insightful. Um, going, kind of picking up the theme with the art. Um, and speaking to the culture, you wrote a song entitled "Bully" on your last album. Uh, in light of the new Supreme Court decision to redefine marriage, what would an additional verse look like um, lyrically? How would you address uh, the, the Supreme Court decision <laughs> and how Christians should engage? I already added an additional verse on my new album. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? Um, we are in a hard time, ain't we? Are we in a hard time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are in a hard time. Um, I think that uh, I don't know. You know, I've been I've been wrapping my mind around trying to wrap my mind around the church's next move. Uh, Unfortunately, this is something that Kirk and I even talked about. Unfortunately, the church has to have a next move. Mm. The fundamental problem, I believe, is that we're having to be reactive um, Mm. because we weren't proactive in dealing with these things, Mm. um, addressing these issues. We have shied away from... um, uh, um, rolling up our sleeves and kind of um, spending the necessary time uh, to ask the right questions to the right people. Um, and when I say the right people, I mean, you know, homosexuals, you know. Um, you know, have the conversation. That's the point I'm making. We haven't, we didn't take the time to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, by and large, protested, um, but never took the time to engage. Um, and consequently, we're having, to, 
everything now is a knee-jerk reaction to the church feeling now helpless. So we're scrambling and, and we're all over the place because we didn't catch it when we were supposed to. Now it's an uphill battle. And so with all of the perspectives that I'm hearing, uh, all the roundtable discussions that I'm listening to, I still don't know. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think that, you know, and when the church doesn't know, what we do is we swing the pendulum either to the far right or to the far left. Mm. Um, and so, quickly, that's what we've done. And so, what we're doing is we're either at the rally with the repent or go to hell uh, ticket mm. sign, or when we're when we have the platform on the Breakfast Club, we shy away from having any answer to the hard questions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we're in a very hard space, man. I do. I think we're in a hard space. Um, what I would say is that to me, the church's responsibility is to do what it's always been responsible to do. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we have to find something new to do. <laughs> I feel like we have to do what we've always been called to do. And what we've always seen in the scripture. And what we've always seen is both and, not one or the other. The reason why I named this new album It's Complicated is because that's what I'm dealing with, by and large. The both and, not the one or the other. It's not the picketed, it's not the repent or go to hell homosexual picket side, and it's not silence either. <laughs> you feel me? Mm -hmm. um, it's how can we find the middle? Because the middle says that we do, we both look for a way to engage, as we talked about Jesus and how he dealt with the publicans and sinners, you know, how he dealt with. Um, the uh, how he dealt with the Samaritan woman, how he dealt with the adulterous woman. This is not anything new. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. This is not new. The thing that makes this difficult is that it's not it's not a it's not personal sin. It's an agenda that's being championed by the masses. Mm -hmm. That's what makes this different. It's not the sin itself that makes makes this different. It's the fact that this is. A, it's the fact that an agenda is being forwarded. That's what make this, makes this different from drunkenness or anything else, because nobody is championing junk drunkenness because everybody understands the detriment of the vice. Mm -hmm. Nobody mm -hmm. champions adultery, not yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody champions pedophilia or, or incest um, because they understand the detriment. This is the only sin that I can think of right now that actually is being championed from the White House. <laughs> you know I me. Mean? Mm -hmm. So the thing that makes it so different is the fact that it is an agenda that is being forwarded, not the sin itself. And so, to me, what we what we have to deal what to me what we're 
having to figure out is how to do both and how to love the people and address the agenda at the same time. <laughs> because you don't, what I, I'm convinced, you don't love the agenda. So you have to protest against that. Mm-hmm. As believers, we have a responsibility to expose falsehood and lies and deception. And we have a responsibility to, if we see the, the flame of, if we see uh, the, 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 the flame of immorality, we have a responsibility to quell or extinguish that flame with truth. Mm-hmm. That's the agenda. We have a responsibility to speak against the agenda. At the same time, we have a responsibility to engage and love the people. Mm-hmm. Now, what we have to figure out is how to live in that tension. Mm-hmm. You feel me? The truth and that's love. What, that's the truth and love. That's what church has to figure out. The church has had a problem. All of us, and I'm speaking as a member of the church, we've had a problem fundamentally with finding the tension, how to live in the tension. Tensions, we have to understand, are healthy. Mm-hmm. You feel me? That's why I said, bring Farrakhan on the shelf. That's the tension. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Automatically, that creates a tension. You feel me? Mm-hmm. But where the, where, where, where the rubber meets the road is where it's when we challenge each other's ideas. But live in the tension. Don't be afraid of tension. No. Mm-hmm. Historically, that is the problem that we've had, living in the tension. And so that's what I would encourage, the balance of grace and truth. The balance of truth, the balance of engaging and loving the people while addressing and challenging. Um, and, and what we need to pray for is the wisdom to know how to do that. This is the thing that society has done with sexuality. Society and, and, well, and popular culture and uh, mass and uh, me- the media have, uh, they have characterized people by their sexual orientation. So, and we do that as well. You feel me? So we see, when we see somebody that is homosexual now, what we automatically say, especially if they're uh, uh, flagrant, uh, or, 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 or what's what I'm looking for, uh, in your face, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, when, when they're in your face, uh, you, you automatically identify them by their sexual orientation. So it's difficult to see them as actual people with, like, everyday lives, problems, everyday going to work every day, you know, having the same emotional challenges, probably with obviously more having to deal with their orientation. Um, You know, it's, it's difficult for us to kind of compartmentalize and, you know, separate one from the other. But... Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, and this is, I guess, this is dealing with how we address them, you know, the people, how we engage them, uh, engage them in love. It's understanding first that they are, they are more than their sexuality. You feel me? Mm-hmm. Because once you understand that they are more than their sexuality, now you begin to engage them based on the fact that they're just people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You feel me? laughs> they're just people. That's it. <laughs> Um, now, when they start to impose their agenda, this is when. 
So you engage them as just people, not even projects, but people. Because oftentimes it's difficult for us to not see people as projects, right? Mm -hmm. So I engage them as people, not necessarily projects, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when we, we, but we raise up and we begin to wave our white flag and we begin to be, we begin to preach against them when they are res when they have resolved to now impose this on the world. Mm -hmm. And so, if we can live in that tension, I think that we would um, be a lot more successful. Uh, and if we can live in that tension as a um, not just individually, not just somebody random on Facebook, you know, but if we could kind of come together and figure out, okay, how can we do this as a church? How can we do this as a, a hip-hop, Christian hip-hop community? How can we do this as a, an apologetic community? <laughs> you feel me? Mm -hmm. how, can we all, how can there be a meeting of the minds and a locking of the arms? Because one of the things that has given them the... Uh, the the, uh, the presence that they have is their insistence and their uh, their unification. Um, you know, what I mean? their community. Mm -hmm. And the the thing that has given them strength is one of our greatest areas of weakness as the body of Christ. And if we begin can begin to band together on these things and address them, I think that will be a lot more successful so but the answer to the question is i would i would talk out the, the 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 thing for the way to engage uh uh this it had the way to um speak to this issue is to, to do it in a, in a both and kind of manner amen i'm hmm. um, speaking of speaking the truth in love i know um on your um one of your albums i can't remember what it was i think it's love hope love, war, war. Uh, <laughs> You uh you um you talked about a you had a song called Ugly Love which I was one of to me one of the most challenging songs that I <laughs> I've listened to, I've listened to cuz I I struggle with you know loving people past the ugliness um how can we use um that as an apologetic cuz I think one of the most powerful mm. apologetic is how we love people God, Jesus said mm. you'll know um, my disciples by how they love and I think that when you see somebody loving somebody past the hurt it automatically shows you it automatically like prompts something in you like what do they believe because I, I mean when we go back to Charleston people were so moved when the people could say um, you know I forgive him people yeah. were like that was like then they like wanted to know like what kind of faith do you have? What kind of relationship with God do you have? When you look at like um, a Mary Mary and Tina Campbell and the fact that she's able to, when you see the Mary Mary kind of thing and people are like, what kind of relationship with God do you have that you can move past that hurt? It seems like when we get past or when we see reconciliation and those types of things, then we really see God use that to kind of tear down the walls um, in people's hearts and draw them to himself. Um, how can we use unconditional love? Cause I know um, you have um, some experience that in your own personal life as an apologetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think it's uh, every example you just listed is the answer to that question. Um, I think it starts with marriage, 
because he, the, one of the greatest acts of love as a commitment, again, because when we talk about love, we have to qualify it. Uh, because when people think of love and uh, in our culture, uh, think of uh, the um, the emotional, um, you know, kind of sensational aspect of love, mm-hmm. um, which is why <clears throat> when people fall quote unquote out of love, um, they get divorced. You know, um, so um, when we talk about love as uh, in, in you know, would be commitment, you know, in the marriage context. Um, I, I think that if the, when Jesus, I mean, when Paul talks about picture uh, that the marriage relationship paints, the much broader picture that it paints, if people could understand, we have to come to a better understanding of the purpose of marriage because. Uh, the purpose of marriage is so cliche. It's a picture between the church and the Christ and the church. That sounds so cliche. But when you begin to flood out the implications of that, um, I think that it what it does is it helps to establish a deeper commitment between two people. One of the things that I came to understand um, in, in my marriage when we went through our tough season is the necessity for reconciliation. That's what I understood. I understood that I was preaching a gospel that had I gotten divorced would have uh, would have seemed ineffective in my own life <laughs> because the gospel that we preach is a gospel of reconciliation. The gospel of reconciliation assumes uh, it, it, uh, it assumes that two people are at odds one with another. Amends have to be made. It assumes conflict, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Reconciliation assumes that there's a problem, that there's a conflict, that <clears throat> there is separation, right? Mm-hmm. So when we preach the gospel of reconciliation, what we're preaching is that what we're is a gospel that says whenever the hostility that stands between you and God can be fixed. <laughs> you feel me? Mm-hmm. That, that hostility, the wall of hostility that stands between you and God can be broken down. The, um, this is why understanding, having a proper anthropology from a biblical perspective is important too, because when you understand that the nature, given the nature of man um, uh, and the depth of depravity, when you understand that man, as a result, is hostile towards God and the enemy of God and war with God and at enmity with God and he hates God and he goes the opposite way of God, then reconciliation makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. You feel me? I mean, it, it's deeper. It goes, it runs deeper because now you understand. Okay, this wasn't like God and some neutral people. You know, mm-hmm. it's like God and straight enemies, people who hated him. As a result, his wrath was kindled and is kindled and is put up against them. So, two people that are at odds with one another, diametrically opposed, at war with one another, 
those two people are reconnected. <laughs> you feel me? Oh, wow. Those two people can be reconnected. Mm-hmm. So now, when you begin to look at Christ and the church in Ephesians 5, and, that, and you begin to think about, okay, what are the implications of this in my marriage? Just make a, you can make a, it is a one-to-one correspondence. When there's trouble in your marriage, when there is conflict, when you are enemies to one another, when there is war, when you have, are at enmity with one another, when amends have to be made, when there is a wall of hostility, reconciliation is possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, and what that does is that gives people not just a sermon, but a picture of the gospel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, I think that with the first relationship that we have to do better at staying committed to <laughs> is marriage. <laughs> <laughs> 50 to 55% of the people in church of the people in church are getting divorced. That's an old statistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel me? God knows if that's increased. Mm-hmm. You feel me? So what I'm what I'm saying what I'm saying is that to me is one of the premier relationships. Mm-hmm. And people need to be able to look, like you said, what Tina has done with is amazing because it paints a picture of foolishness, which is what you want. Because to the world and even to the church, she's a fool. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. To a lot of people, you're a fool for going back to him. You can't trust, see all men, see all, right? Mm-hmm. How do you trust him after he did such and such? But what it paints is a picture of foolishness, which is exactly what Paul said the cross and the gospel would be to those who are perishing. Mm-hmm. Right, but to those who are not, Bible says that it is the wisdom of God. So there is, it is the sweet smelling aroma mm-hmm. of Christ's love to those who are not perishing. Mm-hmm. So I think that the first, the first one of the premier relationships that we have to do better. We've got to do better as the people of God and staying committed to uh, is. Uh, uh, is marriage so that people can see that love and because to me I, I don't in every other relationship you can be you can be get out of it if you, you know you can get in it get out of it as you please mm-hmm. there's no other relationship that demands that you stay committed in the way that marriage does mm-hmm. and so I think that's the first one then the second one is as she just says the love that you have one for another now the thing is this he says this is how they will know that you belong to me Right, which you love, because what that says is, is that it's at the end of the day, it doesn't boil down to your apologetics, it doesn't boil down to your theology, it doesn't boil down to your intellectual acumen, it doesn't boil down to it doesn't boil down to how big your church is. What it boils down to in terms of people coming, understanding who you belong to, um, is your love one for another. Now, I do have to say this: that is difficult in a splintered church. Mm-hmm. Only way people can see the one another's at work, because you see throughout the New Testament the term one another used over a hundred times. Love one another, pray one for another, build one another up in the most holy faith, uh, 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 spur one another on the love of good deeds for the day of the Lord is approaching. Admonish one another, etc., etc., etc. All the, the one another's are are replete throughout the New Testament, but. The one another's have to be visible. See, the one thing about the early church is that they were visible. Right now, the church is open on Sunday and Wednesday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 the, the, the church is open on Sunday, and then it's open on Wednesday. And when we leave out of our churches, we get in our cars and we go home. At what point do people get to see that one another's exercise? 
Wow. At what point, when we go outside and do our uh, outreaches, <laughs> again, that's, that's um, listen, you're a pastor, listen, and that's great. All I'm saying is this, there has to be more of an intentionality. The reason why Islam is dominating right now, Islam is dominating, I'm going to shut up, I promise, I'm done, but Islam is dominating right now because, and I think Chobarak spoke to this too, because of its uh, because of how unified it is, because of the strength, uh, uh, the, the, the unification in, in numbers, uh, because of the strength, sorry, in numbers, uh, because of its uniformity and its aesthetic, you know, um, you know, and, and its appearance, uh, because it's visible, it's present. Most in in, in, my, um, in in West Philly, Muslims have been lined up and down 52nd Street. I'm talking about for a four block radius selling oils and sneakers and, and, and religious uh, gar- garbs uh, for literally 25 years. Wow. Uh, you know, they've, been, they've been out there, you feel me? And, uh, and now all of Philadelphia looks like Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, everybody's a Muslim. Now, I think a lot of it is cultural supremacy. In other words, just people like the they like the, the the way it looks. They like the uniformity. There's so much to like about it. There's so much that's very attractive about it. But a large part of it is they are in people's face. They are visible. And they ain't even preaching. They're just there. They <laughs> just, you just know who they are. Um, and I think that that's what the disciples were, right? The Bible says that 12 men turned the world upside down. People were, the disciples were readily identifiable. 12 to 70, all of them were readily identifiable. People began to know them as the followers of Jesus. Um, But they were out there. They were visible. Um, And so I think that in order for the church, in order for people to see that we love one another, we have to be present outside. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in a community, we cannot be present solo. We can be, but I'm saying... It's so much better and more effective. We are present as a community. And so to that I say, you say, what is the, the love apologetic? I think the love apologetic, one, is marriage. Uh, everybody's watching people's marriages. The fact that my wife and I are so young and we're married, her, all her family, you know, everybody, you know, they live in a hood. Everybody's watching it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tina and Teddy, because of their the high-profile nature of their marriage, everybody's watching it. Even Kirk and Tammy, uh, who went through their thing. When Kirk went on Oprah, he talked about porn, and they went through their struggle. Uh, you know, that's, again, people get a visible, uh, you know, picture of reconciliation, uh, which is the first thing. The second thing I would say is the loving of one another. Uh, you know, obviously, you got to love our families, love our children, et cetera. But Jesus says loving one another uh, is what helps people to to know who, uh, who that you're connected to me, and that's critical. But I think that there has to be, there has to be an intentionality and how we do that, which is, I believe we have to, we have to forge together visible communities that are uh, present, uh, and and that uh, people, um, so that people get an ocular demonstration of 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 love, and we're not just telling them that we really love each other. I know something that kind of came to my head when you were talking about the one another's. I think it's hard in the black church because there's such a seems like this movement to preach stuff where you're going to the next level. Um, you're shifting and people, your God is filtering people out your life, which is, he does that, but it's, it's, it causes, I feel like 
division in the church because it's like God is cutting off my leg to take the rest of my body to the next level. When we are the body of Christ, we're not and it's a community. It's not just about my next level. It's about us yeah. going together. And I think yeah. in some way we don't think through and process how what we're preaching sometimes creates division instead of forcing yeah. people to kind of reconcile one with another. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that there's a sense of, uh, well, it's Western, mm-hmm. Western and thinking. Um, so we naturally, you know, when, when you go to Africa, uh, they still go to go next door to each other's houses to get bread and sugar. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, um, uh, in America, we have picket fences. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, one thing that separates us from our neighbor. See that? See psychologically what that does, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's uh, you know, and politics. You know, we have left and white wing, left wing, left wing, right wing. Republicans and Democrats, you know, uh, red and blue state, you know, um, everything about our culture, they even, we're even divided in a fashion, you know, two dresses, who wore it the best? I think we talked about, talked about that before, you know, mm-hmm. who wore the same dress the best? There's a, a, just automatically a one against the other. There's a pitting of one against the other. There is an individualism uh, or individualistic way of thinking about everything. Um mm-hmm. In our culture and in our society, that's just how Western culture is. So I think that unfortunately, and this is one of the be not tra- be transformed by the renewing of your mind, be not conformed to this world. Uh, the idea that to not be squeezed into the mold of the mode of, th- of this world's thinking, um, uh, even in areas where it doesn't seem sinful, mm-hmm. me. Um, but it is by, by, by all means detrimental. Uh, you know, because like you said, it splinters the church. Individualistic thinking can splinters the church. It does uh, inadvertently, as that, that type of preaching can inadvertently, uh, you know, draw wedges, you know, between, uh, uh, drive wedges, I'm sorry, drive wedges between uh, the, us, each other, you know. Um, so I, I totally, I totally agree with you. I, I think that, um, I just think that, again, I, I always feel like I don't think both and applies to everything, but I do think that uh, both and does apply to more than what we allow for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I personally am convinced that um, that is another both and issue. Mm-hmm. It is the lack of preaching on the the co- communal living, um, the the life of the one man, because the Bible says that God seeks. To, it took the two, and he made one new man, bringing them at peace one with another. Again, reconciliation was not just vertical. Re- reconciliation was horizontal, uh, biblically. Uh, and so, uh, you, you know, but he said when he did that, when he reconciled the two, they became one new man. And it's interesting because you see that same idea all the way in the book of Genesis where he says, and the two became one. And then you see Jesus. That's the beauty of the Trinity. When people challenge us on the Trinity, people don't understand that there is a beauty in the Trinity. Um, when some like other religions, when they challenge us on the Trinity, like Muslims, you know, they, they oftentimes will challenge you. Uh, Judaism, they all the times challenge you on the Trinity. But there is a, I think they are missing. Once you get past the difficulty of the Trinity, um, I think if you look at the implications of it, the implications are amazing. 
uh, because what we see within the nature of the God Himself is this is community. You see this, he, and he, the Bible says, and he does all things according to the counsel of his own will. Look how beautiful that is. A picture of three persons, each, but each person being, each person being, having their own identity. Uh, each person having their own space. This is why I say, I think there's a, uh, there's room for uh, individuality and, and speaking to the individual, you know. Even within the Trinity, within the Godhead, you have that individuality. You have each person um, you're just kind of having their own thing uh, and being their own person. Yet, the Bible says they do all things according to the counsel of their own will. So you see those same three persons who are very distinct, um, you know, come, uh, coming together to counsel one with another. The Bible says that Christ, I think it's in the book of John, laid in the bosom of the Father. Uh, this was before, you know, he was sent. Um you know, but before Christ was sent, he laid in the bosom, Father. What that shows us is that there was love uh, within the person uh, of the of the person of the Godhead. There was a community of love because laying on the bosom. When we see John laying on the bosom of Christ, we understand that to mean uh, that the Bible says, and that he loved him, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we understand that intimacy. So look, we see intimacy within the context of the collective, <laughs> of uh, the context of the collective. So I'm talking about the. Uh, the Godhead, uh, the, the, the Trinity, um, we, we see we see intimacy and we see we see love there. And so um, I, I think that there's a, a I think that there has to be a both end. It's the absence of any talk about community. Uh, that, let me go back to that point real quick because let me tell you what I love about that intimacy, uh, intimacy between the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I, what I love about that is Bible says that God is love. Um, it doesn't just we, and typically what we do is make a beeline to what God did as an expression of love to, uh, uh, to make sense of the fact that he is love, right? Uh, we kind of see a one-to-one there. But God being love and God's expression of love are two very different things. God in his son was an expression of love, but God being love, embodying love, is very, being the very essence of love, I think is very different. And I love the fact that what we see uh, there, and even this is even what separates uh, a uh, <coughs> um, what's what's one looking for a uh, 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 what's one looking for ah it's not come to me. But <coughs> what we see though is when Christ is in the bos- is in the bosom of the Father and that intimacy there, we see love even before He ever did anything. Intimacy mm-hmm. <laughs> even before He sent His Son. That to me is a better proof. Uh, that he is love. That is the very essence of who he is. But at any rate, taking the application, I feel like if we could try to capture that both and, even uh, as the the Trinity is a both and, God, there's there's a a both and within the Godhead, there's a distinctiveness, uh, yet there is a unity in essence. Uh, If we can kind of capture that uh, in our our preaching, um, I think that we would be more balanced. So that, that's my perspective on it. Again, I'm open to a, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that assessment. <laughs> hey, Drew, just want to thank you, man, for all of your insights and um, just assure you're being a great encouragement to our listeners. Uh, for, so, for some of those that may be curious about um, what resources brought you to this point, brought you to a point of being in depth and talking about theology and apologetics, um, what books? Um, websites, or any other resources would you recommend to our listeners? 
Um, I can tell you the resources that I'm reading now. Uh, if that's okay. Yeah, that works. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm reading a book called The Reason for God uh, by Tim Keller, which is amazing. Uh, I was reading uh, Jesus Among Other Gods uh, by Dr. Bobby Zacharias. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading a book by, called uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's very fresh. It's a very fresh uh, perspective on heaven. Um, I'm also reading a book uh, called, I don't know if you want all the books I'm reading. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's another book I'm reading called uh, Christian Denominations, which is very good um, by by, uh, Ron Rhodes. And let me think of any other books that would be uh, relevant to our conversation. Um, I don't know if any other if any if any of the other books come to mind, then uh, I'll just uh, shoot you. I'll just DM you, or um, I don't know what I'll do. But <laughs> but uh, those are the four. Um, those are four four out of the ten books that I'm reading right now. That's dope. And Thanks. the word. And the word. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate so much uh, you giving us your time. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners? That's complicated. Twenty sixteen. <laughs> I'm excited about listening, especially after this conversation. Um, I'm excited to hear um, how you ing- how you use um, how you infuse these ideas into uh, music. So I'm excited about it. Thank you, thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Jude Three Project podcast. Um, as always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. Check out our blog. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Jude3project. Follow us on Twitter at Jude3project, on Instagram at Jude3project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude3project. And remember, at the Jude3project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.